You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, it's Dan Levitard. Welcome to South Beach Sessions. Happy to have a timely guest this week because everybody is talking about Tom Brady's retirement and Gotham Chopra really embedded himself in the life of Tom Brady and over the last few years has had a unique glimpse. He's had access and has the trust of Tom Brady. His man in the arena, the final episode, is coming out later this spring on ESPN+. Plus. He is the son of Deepak Chopra, the holy man, and I wanted to talk to him about his different path because he chose storytelling. He chose to be a war correspondent, and he chose to make interesting movies about Kobe Bryant and interesting content around Tom Brady because that's where the path led him. I want to tell you that South Beach Sessions is presented by DraftKings Sportsbook. DraftKings, I've told you before, is supporting everything we do around here, keeping it free in spirit and free of cost to you. So thanks to DraftKings. Here's Gotham Chopra. Can you tell us the story of how it is you found your way to filmmaking? What was the nature of the calling? Man, good question. I've always been a storyteller. I grew up, my parents are immigrants. You know, I'm first generation American. So the first person in my family born out of Southeast Asia, out of India. You know, I think for me, just storytelling was assimilation. It was sort of figuring out my place. And then my first job really out of college was a company called Channel One, which was a news network broadcast in schools at the time. And I became, you know, look, I, it's, I'm Deepak Chopra's son. So I sort of grew up around a certain atmosphere of spirituality and mindfulness and all this stuff. And when I got to Channel One, which was this news network, they kind of wanted me to pursue that path. I think one of the executives was a fan of my dad's. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'd like to do war correspondence. I'd like to travel internationally. I'd like to go back to India and Pakistan and figure out this feud, Chechnya, Sri Lanka, Colombia. Iran, Iraq, all of these sorts of things. And, you know, that was right around the time of the digital explosion. And all of a sudden you could ca carry a camera in your hand. You didn't need a big crew. And so it just sort of like one step after the other. It was never like a goal or a mission. It was just like I enjoyed telling stories. Well, explain this part of it to yeah. me, though, because you are the son of a famous spiritual man. You're expected to go along a certain path. And now you also have the cultural imprinting of, well, if it's already been successful, why would you take some other path? But you decide, no, I need to follow my heart here. Isn't that what spirituality teaches me? Yeah, I always say that war correspondence <laughs> that, you know, was the most spiritual job I ever had. You know, it's just sort of unpacking people's story. And look, you just said it. It's a calling. It's an archetypal story. Yes, I grew up with a famous father. And I think exactly for that reason, I needed to find my own path. People had a certain expectation of me. I don't know that I ever went through a real rebellious period, per se, as much as, a, okay, I'm going to go do this thing. I remain, I was close to my dad then. I'm close to my dad now. He was always, and my mom were always very sort of supportive of find your own mission, find your own calling, whatever it is. And so, I don't know, I just sort of like, I think going back to your original question, for me, storytelling is about unpacking 
where am I from? Who am I? Where am I going? Why am I here? You know, and, and unscripted storytelling, you know, I've always been in this sphere of unscripted. Gotham, you can't, you're not allowed to say I'm not that rebellious and just sort of speed bump over. You could have been the modern day prophet, spiritual golden child. You chose war correspondence. Like you actively chose to put yourself in harm's way while calling it the most spiritual of journeys. Yeah, but I mean, rebellious in the classical sense. I didn't, you know, join a frat and kind of like, you know, in college, I was pretty straight laced in that sense of like, I went to school in New York City, I was able to explore, I was able to quote, rebel in other ways, like skip class, and go watch Broadway shows and stuff like that. But I never did it in the sort of traditional way. I didn't, I never felt the sort of need. But yeah, the war correspondence was, it was probably just like, oh, there's a set of expectations I want to do the opposite, which, you know, on the face of it, it's the opposite. But like I said before, to me, it was the most spiritual because you go to these places and there's 14 year olds fighting, right? They don't have a feud necessarily with the, the person they're fighting. It's a sort of part of their cultural DNA. It's they've inherited this sort of feud, this rivalry. And so I was just fascinated by that. And I just wanted to understand that, you know, it was the opposite of my upbringing. And it was just sort of interesting. And then, you know, I sort of skipping ahead, but it sort of was rooted in the past is like, so I would go to places like India and Pakistan or Sri Lanka, uh, Kashmir, you know, this age old feud, right, that's going on up there. And this was like, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and you would have kids wearing bad boys t shirts, right. And you would have like, kids who had never seen an NBA game, but were wearing Dennis Rodman jerseys and stuff like that. And there was like this language of sports that no matter where you went, people spoke and people worshiped the bad boys or Michael Jordan or whatever. And I, I don't know. I was, and later it was Allen Iverson. And there was always some American, usually basketball athlete that kind of like cut through the noise. And I was just sort of fascinated by that. So sports then became like, and it was largely 30 for 30 that really like made me believe like, oh, these things can come together. You know, this can live, you can be a filmmaker, storyteller, journalist, et cetera, but you can also love sports. What a funny thing though, for you to go. I wonder how many people from your father's world and whatever judgment you'll find in religion, if not spirituality, would say, look at this bum, threw away every chance he had in order to chase these athletes around with his little camera. Like he was given the golden child. He's the descends from a holy man. He could have done anything in the world. He's chasing around Kobe and Tom Brady with his camera, right? Like I imagine there's some of that, uh, I, I imagine yeah. there's some poison uh, there because you chose your own path. Yeah, there, I mean, there's always going to be. And I mean, I grew up around it. People were haters of my dad and stuff like that. He's the medicine man. He's the charlatan, all of that sort of stuff. So that type of stuff was never really like too much of a distraction for me. I'll say that, like, you know, starting with Kobe, because he was the first real prominent athlete that I got close to and worked with. I was like, oh, wait, you're speaking the same language as my dad. Peak performance, being in the zone having a purpose, you know, living your purpose. These are things my dad's been talking about his whole life, you know? And so I just really like, yes, there's always going to be haters. I grew up around that. People called me my dad, a medicine man and a charlatan and a kook and a quack and all that sort of stuff. So I've never really been distracted by that sort of noise. And then 
Kobe Bryant was the first real prominent athlete that I worked with. And the more I got to know him, I was like, oh, wait, you're speaking the same language as my father, you know, living with intention, having a purpose, seeking peak performance, like the best version of yourself. You know, Kobe, you know, this is another sort of contradiction, I think, on the face of it, to me, was a very sort of spiritual person. And of course, he grew up under Phil Jackson on the Lakers. So he was familiar with things like meditation and mindfulness and clearing your mind and all of that sort of stuff. So and then Tom is like, you know, Tom Brady's the best example. I mean, talk about peak performance. I mean, Tom you know, there's a physical aspect of his pursuit of greatness and continuing to play, but there's, and the more I've gotten to know him, oh, there's an emotional aspect, a mental aspect and a spiritual aspect of, of what he's doing. And he's very, very diligent about each of those things. So for me, again, like everything I do, religion of sports, the company we started is the convergence of my father's world and then my obsession with sports. Can you explain to us, and this is a broad question, what you learned about spirituality from your father? The right and the wrong when I ask you what you've learned, because we're all here to break some of the patterns that our parents imprint us with, whether we want them or not. So I don't, I've heard you speak about your father before and I found you honest, but you also have to navigate this line between, uh, you know, getting aggregated because you're saying something about your father that's simply honest because parents leave imprints with what their thoughts and patterns are and you decided to make some choices for yourself outside of that yeah so first what i've learned from my dad live with intent you know what is my purpose i mean from a very very early age my father used to ask us literally he, he put us to sleep at night my sister and i and he'd say who are you what is your purpose do you believe in god and if so how are you here to serve her he would always say you know and these are the the thoughts we would go to sleep with. And then when we would wake up, he would ask, so what, you know, did you come up with any answers? So this sort of quote, spirituality was part of a language that I grew up from probably eight, age of seven, eight years old. I also learned how to meditate, you know, which at the beginning was like, just stay quiet for five minutes, observe silence. It would later become a tool where I would, oh, understand what mindfulness and the purpose of meditation and having an anchor. So you know, that's what I learned from my father, which is like just to root yourself in some sense of self-reflection, self-awareness. As I grew older, as my dad became more famous and more well-known, all of the trappings of fame, you know, they were there and I saw them firsthand with him, you know, and he got distracted and he, there were all increasingly, there were always, I mean, there were celebrities and stuff like that, but there were also like venture capitalists and private equity and how do we commodify this and build a brand and i think there was a period of my dad's life where he got distracted by that and he sort of became enamored with that because how could he not he's a human being you know and but i think later in life probably the last 10 years 15 years he's in his mid-70s he had his own reversion like oh wait sort of awakening to sort of say, that's not why I'm here. And I could do much more. So a lot of people, you know, have this perception that, you know, my dad has like this huge fortune and like this enterprise. There really isn't. He is, you know, the other thing I'll say about my dad as, as an entrepreneur I've learned is like the best brand building you can do is be authentic to who you are. My dad never had a business plan or certainly he never successfully executed a business plan. He just kind of was an artist and he did what he did. And for that, he was successful. And so 
outside of the spiritual world, I would say that's something I've definitely, you know, learned from him is just be true to who you are. So 40 years trying to answer the question from childhood that you've been asked, what's your purpose? So your first question, I'm a storyteller. You know, I enjoy unpacking people's stories. If you ask me today, like what's, and you know, you and I are in the same boat with like, you know, these companies that we've sort of built around us and people, what's the two-year plan? What's the five-year plan? What's the exit? I'm like, I don't know. Like, you know, like everything in that business plan that my partner's made, it's going to change. I don't, you know, it's like, I've learned this from Tom. I put one foot in front of the other. You look back and you're like, holy shit. Like that's, that's quite a journey. But, you know, when you're looking forward, it's just like that next peak, you know, and that's, I've always tried, it's the first rule of spirituality 101. Don't get distracted by the past. Don't get distracted by the future. Stay present, stay grounded. And that's like, I try to be here, be here now, be here with you, not worrying about the 14 things I've scheduled on my calendar after this. And so that's, you know, I don't really think about too much about the prior 46 years, or the next two to five years. You've learned that having kids also, you know. But, and, but and from so. there, meditation becomes a messenger, correct? From there, what you're talking about, learning from your father, what to take from spirituality, birthed by whatever you want, a holy man, kook, a lifetime spent chasing spirituality, chasing a higher calling, chasing listen to your heart. There, meditation only becomes the stilling of the mind so that it can be a messenger, correct? So you could be, it's the power of now, it's, you're talking about the greatest gift, it's present, it's you are not your thoughts, you're the one observing your thoughts. Yeah, man, you speak language, this isn't your first rodeo, that's pretty obvious. Yes, I think I have always lived, and you know, credit to my parents, and I think this is a part of my, and I'm sure you can relate to this, immigrant blood is like, there's a sort of divine discontent, like there's always a sort of nagging frustration, like, oh, there's still something I need to accomplish, there's something more I need to, and so I have that meditation is drifting back, yeah, into that silence, and just, and by the way, like while I learned when I was seven years old and I've been a steady practitioner, there have been moments, including like in the last three months, probably I get distracted. I don't do it as regularly, but it's sort of become, it's this thing is like, oh, why am I feeling restless? Why am I feeling frustrated? Why are little things bugging me? Oh, right. I stopped. It's like exercising. I haven't been regular with my practice. And then I sort of drift back. And I do feel that sort of grounding because meditation is not the, 20 minutes a day that you do it, it's the 23 hours and 40 minutes that you're not doing it. You know, it's like, oh, that 20 minutes then sort of permeates other aspects of your life. And that's what I have found with meditation. It's sort of, it drifts. It's the silence you take with you from it, not necessarily the silence in the meditation. I may speak the language, but I have trouble with the connection because I found that my mind is the greatest of poisons. I've, I find that not being able to still it is a bit of a torment and also a creative birthing place. But meditation for me has always just felt again and again. And this comes from patterns and self-judgment and self-loathing, but it's always felt like failure again and again that I, I almost can't get there. Even as I would say, and I don't think I'm speaking for you here, if I tell you one spiritual lesson above all other that you have learned from Kobe Bryant and holy men and Tom Brady, do you have one better than be present? 
figure out how to get to just present? I'd say, yeah, that's a good one. And I, but I, there's one other one, which I always, I, I think of a lot probably comes from my dad, but you know, I would, I see it in these other guys you just mentioned, which is don't take yourself too seriously. And it's, it's a simple one. I think it's relatable. Don't get caught up in your own ego. Don't get caught up in your own bullshit. Certainly don't get caught up in your own fame or success or failure to your point. These are all just sort of drifting experiences and moments in time. And so that's the other one that, you know, I, I think of a lot and, you know, tracks back to my father. And that's not necessarily something he taught me. It's something I sort of observed in him. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You speak of something here from the inside because you've gotten closer to Kobe Bryant and Tom Brady than usually is allowed from within the mythology, right? You've gotten real close to showing uh, true selves, warts and all. And some of the things that give me the access to this language, it can be learned, right? The power of now, Eckhart Tolle, you can read about the experience of others, but you were talking about the emotion of it, not just reading it, not just the brain absorbing it. You're talking about Tom Brady has an emotional connection to whatever his greatness is. What are you talking about there when, because I have problems getting to that, to getting to feeling it as opposed to observe that I'm feeling it or my mind taking over because the illusion of the mind gives you control. I mean, Tom's a great example, right? Tom, even like, you know, why he sort of became a partner in the company we call, we started called Religion and Sports. He's like, because I understand sports is a spirituality. I understand what it means to be at the epicenter of something where everybody's investing their hopes and dreams and or the opposite, you know, their anger and their revulsion and their hatred rooting against you. I can feel that energy. Tom's a big energy guy. He talks a lot about these things. So for him, sports is a spiritual pursuit. It's like everything we just talked about in meditation, you know, peak performance is being present. It's not like worrying, you know, you hear it all the time, one game at a time, one play at a time, you know, actually when that kicks in, it's the most spiritual experience ever. And, and I think that's, you know, you become kind of an addict of it. It is so 
fulfilling. And in the rest of your life, especially the more successful you are, you got people trying to get things from you. And, you know, I've seen, I've been with Thomas, like the stream of emails and texts. And, and by the way, it's his own doing. He's built the companies, he's built the Brady brands and the TB12s and stuff like that, because he has that sort of divine discontent. Why do Kobe Bryant and Tom Brady trust your storytelling? Well, I think there's a certain practical aspect. I grew up around fame. So we didn't talk about Michael Jackson, who I got to know, you know, when I was young, 13, 14 years old. And I was around that. And I joke all the time. Kobe used to say this all the time. He's like, man, if MJ could, Michael Jackson could trust you, I can trust you. And I think there was just, you know, and then it becomes self-fulfilling. Tom, Steph, you know, other athletes I've worked with, they see, oh, you could work with Kobe and Kobe could trust you, then I can trust you. So I think that's a lot of just like the practical aspect is just but trust I, you know, with what are you doing journalism or are you telling their stories in the most honest way you can but also allowing them to help you in places where they might be sensitive or whatnot so you're not doing traditional journalism you're doing storytelling you're not doing propaganda but you're also you're in partnership with these people on the making of something right they have who has editorial control and does that matter yeah. to you so 100 percent. i think that's a really important point is like so my background is in reporting all the conflict stuff we talked about. This is not reporting. I'm not a journalist. I'm not, you know, I read Seth Wickersham's book. You know, I read, <laughs> see these books to help me get some background, but I am not a reporter trying to come in and sort of, you know, find the story necessarily. I am absolutely a partner, you know, with, with Kobe or Tom or whomever to tell the story. And therefore, yes, being like, okay, what are the sensitive areas? You know, I pushed back a lot. Like we got to talk about that, you know, stuff in Colorado. We need to talk about deflate gate. We need to talk about the things, you know, the ending of the Patriots, you know, things that are quote unquote sensitive, but I get it. I hear you. Like, you know, there's a lot of talk. There's a, as you know, like there's a lot of stuff that never for everything that gets in the film, there's God knows how many minutes that doesn't. Well, Who I just think I, the reason I yeah. ask you the question, you've got such a unique vantage point, right? Because you can't, these people don't have to give anybody access. They give it to you because they trust you and it doesn't make you a propaganda arm. You're trying to tell an honest story in partnership with somebody that is flaws and all. But what I've seen on Showtime is a bunch of documentary deals where they get athlete access and the exchange for that is the athlete gets to tell the story. And Kobe Bryant and Tom Brady telling their story, no matter how present or self aware they are is not as interesting necessarily as a great storyteller with all of those details in his hands. Yeah. So I'm a partner, you know, to the point that I think I drive them crazy. I have these types of conversations that you're having. We're like, well, you know, the hero's journey and hero of a thousand faces and what's the catalyst to the story? I mean, that's, you know, what I study. That's what I went to school. That's what I'm obsessed with. I am a film snob. I don't like reality shows. I don't want to just like throw up cameras and like, hey, let's roll. You know, like it's about choices. It's about the questions you're asking me. This isn't my life story. This is like guided. So going back to an important question asked, who has editorial control? I like to think I have editorial control, you know, contract like contractually, and it gets all when you get into a network, actually the network has editorial control, but what do they see? Like, you know, and there's part of the trust from the network too. It's like, they don't 
know what they don't see, but you're that's trying, okay. You're they trying know within the conflicts to tell the most honest story you can about people who trust you, who you've gotten to know, who are going to have some sensitivities in some areas where you're having daily arguments about, here's why it's important to show what can be misconstrued or aggregated. Here's what's important to show the audience if you truly want to connect in a way that makes them think you and this is authentic. Yeah. And I, you know, Kobe is the best example because I've been fortunate to work with really smart people, right? Kobe's like what was one of the smartest, not just athletes, people. And Kobe was also combative. So everything was a fight. Like, you know, everything, that's how he was always at his best. It's how people around him were at their best. So everything was a fight. Like, and he was in the edit room. Tom is like, quote, trusting, gee, you got it. Let me see just, but you know, more or less, he trusts me. We've had that. We've had a lot of projects. Kobe, it was like a fight. It was like him standing over your shoulder in the edit room at four in the morning saying, get that the fuck out of there. No, man, I'm not going to do that. And it was everything was a fight, but it was invigorating, you know, and he was passionate. And, and to me, the greatest sort of lesson I ever learned was working with Kobe. All the success since stems from that. You've given us all the context. These are real human relationships. You run the risk of getting aggregated, but I want the best Kobe story. I want teeth bared, him being maximum asshole on behalf of something that he wants. Rick Fox told us an amazing story the other day about being challenged by Kobe in a way where he had to be willing to fight him for Kobe to back down. He had to show him that he was willing to get into a fight. Otherwise, Kobe wouldn't respect it. First of all, like all these projects take a village so lots of editors producers writers researchers kobe made us move the entire production down to newport where he lived because you know i started working with kobe when he came back from his achilles injury he played basketball he came back then he injured his shoulder and then they shut him down and all of a sudden kobe had a lot of time on his hands and wanted to be part of this process making this project muse back in the day so he moved he demanded basically that everyone move down to newport i commuted from la we did but he was just in the edit room terrorizing everyone, <laughs> these young researchers and stuff like that. And I would all, we would always, you know, we're all big basketball fans. So I would say, listen, you have a choice now. You can either be Brick Fox or Shaq or all the people who had success with Kobe, which is they fist fought in practice. You know, Kobe would challenge everybody, fight with everybody. Those are the teams that won championships. Then we all know the story of Smush Barker. Kobe would go at this kid in practice and would run him over. And if you didn't challenge him, if you didn't stand up to him, that was it. You were done. You were never to be it's, heard it's from. cruel but it's also survival of the fittest it's asshole and he thought I don't know how right he was about this he thought the two things had to be together Tom Brady's not an asshole he's every bit the killer he's uh, he seems m much more spiritually centered not fueled quite by by rage but uh, the best argument with Tom Brady can you give us the subject matter is it possible without betraying a confidence to go through like what because these are two very different people I remember Kobe so interested in how early maybe it was different later how he was perceived right I remember after everything that happened in Colorado getting a call from someone who Kobe wanted to sit down with me after a lifetime of turning down interviews because he was very eager to go city by city to see if he could correct the damage he had done to his image and so I imagine these two think very differently about how they're received yeah so I love by the way Kobe I always used to say was a myth maker he understood so one of the other you know fun stories he used to 
have these things called the blackout workout, which is like you would work out so hard that you would black out. Like, and everyone talked about this. And when I was filming, I was like, Kobe, man, like, I want to film like one of these blackout workouts. Like, what the hell? It sounds crazy. He's like, man, he's like, there's no blackout. It's like, you crazy? Like, I wouldn't work out, you blackout. But man, that shit sounds cool, doesn't it? And he like understood the mythology and that mythology lives on. You talk to any like current NBA players, they all worship Kobe. And man, that guy would run through a brick wall and like they, they sort of emulate that. And that myth lives on, you know, and that's, that's archetypal too. When people die young, you know, their myth, the John Lennon's and the James Dean's and stuff like that, it lives on. So Kobe is archetypal. Tom, yes, absolutely. He's the complete opposite. Tom needs sort of tranquility around him. Everything needs to be balanced for him to perform on the field. Things have to be conscious. You know, he's very conscious of even is how he talks, how he speaks with his family, with his wife, with his kids, because if there's something imbalanced there, then he feels it on the field. And he talks a lot about like, then, you know, I'm, I'm distracted. There's something that's distracting. So, you know, what do he and I quote fight about? Like we don't fight like, but you know, does he have strong opinions? Like, obviously, on this latest project, you know, a lot of it's like, especially towards the end, the last couple episodes of Man in the Arena is about the last few seasons in New England. And just like, there was a lot of success on the field, but there was a lot of underlying tensions, him, Belichick, you know, just in general, the organization, living in Boston, all the fame. And Tom's always like, gee, I don't want to talk about that. Like, I don't want to give it energy. I don't want to, like I said, he's a very energy guy. And I'm always like, yeah, I, I hear you, but if we don't, that's all anyone's going to talk about. That's what people, so finding that balance, but it's a back and forth. Tom, with Kobe, it was a fist fight. <laughs> like it was, and you had to prove it. You had to like convince him. You had to, you know, just sort of fight it out. Whereas Tom, it's a discussion. It's a trust thing. It's just a sort of quote negotiation in that way but he's very, he listens a lot and he trusts everyone around him. If he's bought in, if he trusts the relationship, then he's a lot more open. So difficult and so different the way that the two of them arrive at similar results. One of them emotionally sounds like he's sitting by a stream and the other one sounds like a dam being exploded by dynamite. But you know, that's like part of my job is, and, and all the people I work with is understanding that is like, oh, okay. I mean, and I'm a sports fan. So like, I, like I was going back, like I, I'm a Celtics fan, so I've watched a lot of Celtics Lakers game through the years. And, you know, Kobe and I used to always talk about this. He would always talk about like, man, you're, I'm the guy you want to put the ball in your hands, in your hands, game seven. I'm like, Kobe, you were seven for 24 in game seven against the Celtics. It was meta or Ron Artest, you know, was hitting shots at the end. But I was a fan, so I could see like, oh, yeah, I, I get it. Like when he's at his best is when, you know, like there's friction and that's Kobe. Tom is the complete opposite. He's at his best when things are tranquil around him. Therefore, you have to create that environment to get the best out of him. So it's reading. And this, you know, is like comes from my background with my father. That's, you know, it's about people. It's about understanding people. It's about, you know, how do you find the best in someone is like put them in the state where they are at their best. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. These two, you have specific access to explaining some of the ways that they live and they lead that people would find illuminating that perhaps they wouldn't volunteer, that has to be excavated by somebody who knows how to storytell. Michael Jackson, you mentioned him casually and in passing. You can't do that to me. You got to give me the the weird cocktail story that you've got, and then we'll move on. I've got a I've got a big question. I want to end this with, but um, I I want to ask you just your best Michael Jackson story. Well, I met you know context is I met Michael um, you know through my father, who Elizabeth Taylor had introduced Michael Jackson to my father, probably when I was 13, 14 years old. So I got to know him. I when I was seventeen or eighteen, I was a junior in high school. Michael was going on tour uh, in Europe, the dangerous tour at the time. It was the biggest rock tour of all times. And he asked me, my family, like, do you want to come with me? You know, free scandal. These were all like, seemed like a good idea and everything. So I was like, yeah. So I went and, you know, I was just like Michael's buddy, like on this tour. And it was amazing for the first week, you know, do these sold out stadium tours in Wembley Stadium or in Amsterdam or whatever, 80,000 people screaming, shouting. Then Michael would go back to his hotel. He would sit at the top of the hotel and watch movies like My Fair Lady. Meanwhile, I was a 17-year-old kid. All the dancers and the supporting cast like that I had sort of become friendly with were like going out to the coolest clubs and everything. So like a week into it, I was like, so this is really cool. I love this, but like, I think there's a way... Like, I basically want to hang out, like, with the hot dancers and stuff like that. And so I asked for a job. Like, I'm like, is there a way for me to sort of... And Michael made it happen. They, like, literally made a position. I was 17 years old. I spent the next six weeks traveling around, still hanging out with Michael and whatever. But at night, you know, afterwards, like, going out, there were a lot of... That was probably my rebellious period before I even knew it. There were a lot of firsts that happened across the seven weeks in Europe. And uh, Michael... Probably not the craziest story. There were crazy stories. I went to school at Columbia. I'll tell you one story, which is great. I was at Columbia and, you know, living uptown at the campus. Michael at the time used to live basically in the Four Seasons at the top. It was like Edward Scissorhands. He lived at the top of the Four Seasons. He would call me down and he would ask me to help him with, you know, he was always creating music, right? He was always writing lyrics and stuff like that. And he would say, hey, can you bring those, you know, like this was pre-internet time, you know, late, no, mid nineties. So thesauruses and rhyming dictionaries and stuff like that. And I would go down with him and work with him and, you know, just basically help him sort of ideate and brainstorm. Michael would say, hey, how much do I owe you? And I was like, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, you know, and he'd go back, in the bathroom, he would have pillowcases stuffed with cash, just like thousands of dollars. And he would bring them out and he'd like start giving me money, $1,000, $1,500, $2,000. And like, you know, I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm good, man. Like, you know, thank you. This is plenty. Then I would like call my friends from Columbia. It'd be like one in the morning. They'd come down and we'd all go to Flash Dancers. And I would have like two grand, three grand. And it was like a party. 
And every time I would ask Michael, I'm like, Hey, you want to come like this? And he's like, I would love to, I can't though. And you know, like, he's like, do you think I could wear a disguise Would anybody know and all this stuff? And he never, you know, he could have, he could have, I had been out with him when he was disguised, but it was psychologically, that was his prison sitting up there. But man, we would have a good time. And I would tell him the stories and everything like that. And it was all those, I now think like, man, I was grossly underpaid. But at the time, you know, having three grand in cash, you know, for my friends and I was a pretty good payday. Such an interesting vantage point you've had on fame and its contaminants. I'm curious as a filmmaker, what you do with the film that HBO did, which led me to assume that Michael Jackson is a pedophile. And how do you how do you manage that entire landscape as a storyteller who has these arguments with people? And what do you believe there? Because I left that documentary saying, well, yeah, he was troubled and deviant. So I, I don't know that I needed that filmmaker to form my own conclusions that Michael was deeply troubled. You know, I'm, a, I'm an art history buff. I'm a student of greatness, you know, and that's what I'm fascinated by. It's all the athletes. So what I saw in Michael was what I've read about Vincent van Gogh, Michelangelo, like wildly talented, right? Like transcendent, not even human, wildly tortured, dark troubled, conflicted, you know, and I, I observed it. I never observed it to that degree. You know, I had nothing but great experiences with Michael. I think that was a lot because of my background, you know, just in terms of like stability growing up, it's self-awareness, all that sort of stuff. A lot of the kids that were around him didn't really have that. And Michael was troubled. He was a troubled kid. You know, that's what it was. He was a troubled 14 year old that never really evolved. That's why I was sitting up in those hotel rooms watching My Fair Lady. So going back, very difficult. I didn't make it through that film. It was great filmmakers, brave storytellers, all of that sort of stuff. Leading. Also, oh, you but you couldn't watch there. it. You couldn't finish it because it it hurt too much to see what might be the yeah, truth. Or I don't something. know that. Look, like every project, and I've been on the other side. It's there's a lot of truth. There's probably stuff that's not necessarily exaggerated truth, or maybe just not even true. You know, a lot of conjecture and stuff like that. I think all of the above. I didn't do a deep study of it because it's too painful. You know, honestly, it's like, you know, I've been talking about Kobe, like it's painful. Like, you know, I, that was devastating. I think about that a lot every day, like Kobe's passing. So it's hard, but yeah, that was, you know, Michael's, Michael will be talking about, or not us, but our kids, our kids, kids, et cetera, will be talking about him because for better or for worse, that's, like I said, he'll be one of those people, the Mozarts, the Amadeuses, et cetera, tortured artist with a think, brilliant legacy creatively. Think about every day because how just the mortality of it, the finality of it, the suddenness of it, no matter how much you think that life is fragile. What's what's happening there that every day it's hitting you? Kobe. So, you know, one more Kobe story. I remember, I can't remember what year it was, but we were watching a, um, I think it was a Brooklyn Nets game. And there was a player who shot 0 for 9 from the field in the first half. And then his stat line at the end of the game was 0 for 9. And I said something to Kobe. I'm like, oh man, he didn't take a single shot in the second half. And Kobe's like, bro, I'd be 0 for 49 before I stopped shooting. And he's like, because you have a certain, he's like, I have a certain mentality. I could go 
over 48, over 49. You know what? It's that 50th one that's going to go in and make all the difference. And that was just like the mentality with which he lived. It was just, there was a relentlessness. So here we are in a pandemic. We're in our second year, third year, however long it's been. And it's like, it is easy. It is easy to like, I am so tired of this. Wake me up when it's over. Let me know when this shit is done and I will pick up and we'll figure it out. The Kobe mentality, the Mamba mentality, whatever he mythologized was like, no, you know what? I'm going to get up to, you know what? Today is going to be the day. Today will be the day. It all turns around. I'm going to give it everything. And it's just like, that was Kobe and it's difficult. I mean, I had fights with Kobe. Like it was exhausting. You know, it was like, there. I hated that guy and he hated me at times. And yet like there was always a coming back and a sort of, I'm, doing this to push you. I'm doing this to get the best out of you. So I think about that a lot. The last few months, there's been some sort of family trauma stuff. You know, my wife wasn't healthy and it's just like, I, uh, I don't want to deal with this. Oh, I'm going to deal with this because, you know, that's kind of what Kobe would have done. I want to mine the miner because you have such an interesting access point on the genius of both of these two men and how it is they may have arrived there and how they thought they arrived there. But true or false, Kobe Bryant would just park all over Los Angeles in his Ferrari and just park it wherever he wanted to. And people just sort of knew you don't bother with that car. Kobe gets Los Angeles is his entire playground. That was true. I used to fly with him in a helicopter occasionally. He would fly from Newport downtown to Staples for games. And he would like land on a building, I don't know, some bank or something, a high rise, come down the freight elevator and his, his one of his cars, a Lamborghini or whatever, would be there. It was like Batman. And he would literally, it's like five minute drive to Staples at that point. But it was just like there with the door open. And he would just like walk in. I was like, man, you really are a superhero. Like you lived that life. Again, he was great at mythologizing. He didn't need to do that. But he people would see him doing that. The hel- people knew, oh, that's the helicopter. That's him. That's the Ferrari. Well, he always, he always wanted a helicopter. Like I, yeah. there, there are so many parts of his story that I got to let you go. I wanted to ask you about the Wickersham book. It, it, it was, uh, that's a good journalist, right? It's just that people can have different perspectives on what the truth is. So the Brady Belichick stuff, as you're reading the Wickersham book, you're reading and you're like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate. I think from what I know, but like also, um, you know, Tom says in episode nine of Man in the Reno, he says, listen, no one moment, no one season defines a relationship. And so, sure, at the end of 20 years where there are difficult times and stuff like that, was there friction? Sure. Did that define? And if you go back and you watch some of the early episodes of Man in the Arena, you see the exact opposite, which is Tom talking about this mentor, this genius that so much of his success. And Tom will tell you that he's even the post Belichick success, post-Patriot success is a lot to do with Bill. So it's all true. We're out of time, unfortunately. So the last question I'm going to start asking all of my guests at the end, but you have a unique vantage point as someone who leaves a holy man's side, leaves some of his patterns, chooses war correspondence and storytelling. Define God. God is a state of being. God is a state of being, being present with you right now that is a spiritual experience and that is to me what god is you know it's not some embodied being etc it's literally just being present 
being in the moment. Gratitude for the moment that you're in at the high end of bliss, right? That's what is people in yoga, praying to Mecca, meditation, holy men, wisdom passed down. Just find a way to love the center of your being, where you are, where one foot in front of the other and appreciate it and love others. It just comes, it gets simpler and simpler, right? Life becomes smaller and smaller. The concept of God, as large as it is, you're reducing it there to a pebble inside each and every one of us. Yeah, man, it's beautiful the way you said. I would extend it, all of those things that you said. I started a company called Religion of Sports. Sports is spiritual. Sports is about human potential. We've heard the expression, the runner's high. You know, why do people go running? You know, it's, yeah, stay in shape, et cetera. But it's also because every once in a while, you lose yourself. You're just there. Like you're in your stride. It's Tom Brady talking about you know, being on the field. It's Steph Curry, I've worked a lot with saying, it's that man, he shoots, he turns around, he knows it's going in because it's just fluidity. It's just being the best version of yourself. And that's, that's why I love sports. I'm a big sports fan, but I also think sports is this great spiritual backdrop to get to do these types of things, to explore these, these sorts of ideas. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing so much time with us. Me too. Thank you, man. This is super fun. I had no idea this is what we're going to talk about, but it was. this has been great. What did you think we were going to talk about? I don't know. Like, I don't know. No, no, actually, I should know better. I know you, like, but, you know, I've done so many of these and it's all the Belichick Brady stuff. And it's all the sort of gossipy stuff of like, well, you know, what does Tom really think? And it's like, I don't know, because, you know, to some extent, I don't really care. I'm a, I will say I'm a Patriots fan. I look at it in the totality. I don't want to talk about like messy breakups. Oh, but the reason I want to talk to you, I've got a million questions about these guys because their fortresses are so large and they trust so few people and they're so careful about their image that I got to imagine there are a thousand places where you have a thousand stories that people have not heard about who they are from a different vantage point. And I'd like to present that to my audience, not the gossipy stuff, just like how these people became excellent so differently because Tom seems to, I know we can reduce it to, you know, doctor, chief whatever it is but tom seems to have figured out some um some peaceful truths about life mentally physically emotionally and uh the universe his his astrological chart would tell you he's also born into this but this, he needed to chase this knows it it makes him happy and that addiction is something that feeds his soul as he takes a step at a time and a million people have to go sell you know shield tb12 product for him yes you've done a lot of thinking of this i have a lot yeah probably a lot to say i have a lot not to say because to your point it's like you know that's the trust that's the bond that's the promise that's how you get to make these projects and the projects are sort of the upshot it's the relationships that matter to me like i you know I think about Kobe every day and that matters to me. That is part of my spiritual evolution. I've learned a lot from, from being with these guys. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the time. We'll do it again. All right. Thanks, man. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. 
A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.